When Esther's female servants and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen's whole body showed how upset she was. She sent everyday clothes for Mordecai to wear instead of mourning clothes, but he rejected them. Esther then sent for Hathak, one of the royal eunuchs whose job it was to wait on her. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was going on and why he was acting this way. Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He spelled out the exact amount of silver that Haman promised to pay into the royal treasury. It was in exchange for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave Hathak a copy of the law made public in Susa concerning the Jews' destruction so that Hathak could show it to Esther and report it to her. Through him, Mordecai ordered her to go to the king to seek his kindness and his help for her people. Hathak came back and told Esther what Mordecai had said. In reply, Esther ordered Hathak to tell Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people in his provinces know that there's a single law in a case like this. Any man or woman who comes to the king in the inner courtyard without being called is to be put to death. Only the person to whom the king holds out the gold scepter may live. In my case, I haven't been called to come to the king for the past 30 days. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther. Don't think for one minute that unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you're in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very important time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place, but you and your family will die. But who knows? Maybe it was for a moment like this that you came to be part of the royal family. Esther sent back this word to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and tell them to give up eating to help me be brave. They aren't to eat or drink anything for three whole days, and I myself will do the same along with my female servants. Then, even though it is against the law, I will go to the king, and if I am to die, then die I will. So Mordecai left where he was and did exactly what Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to jump into Esther a little bit later. I will say that I love this story for the um, for times such as this. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I often see it at Hobby Lobby's or Cracker Barrel next to the Eat, Pray, Wine. It's wine o'clock, y'all, signs. So we will be moving away from that because we can do better. Um, I'm going to talk about Ida B. Wells today. We've, we talked about what Y'all Saints is, and so I won't belabor that again. But I do love that Y'all Saints is about normal people. There's no special status granted them. They're normal people who are doing really good things by following God. Um, also, too, I will say, because this is on Ida B. Wells, for those who know kind of her story a little bit, there's going to be some pretty sensitive topics. I'm going to be touching, talking about racialized violence and sexual violence in this sermon, so just be prepared for that and do what you need to do. Um, yeah, how many of us have heard of Ida B. Wells? Do we know? Is there a pretty broad, even just the name, do we know Ida? Yeah, me too. Um, I, I knew Ida as a name for a while. She was always taught in history classes. Um, or I'd read a book and I'd be like, Ida B. Wells is this awesome person who did X, Y, and Z. Um, but it wasn't until I went to Duke. Um, I was taking a class called Womenist Theological Ethics, which is looking at the world kind of through an African-American women's lens and perspective, and was assigned to read Ida's book called A Red Record, um, which is a pretty, it's brutal, it's documenting basically the history of lynchings in the United States in the year 1892, which to me is just bananas that in even that far ago, like there were so many to fill a book. Um, 
So I'd recommend to read it just to even know what was going on and kind of what the deal is. She has a really great critique of kind of like complacency in the South, uh, in the American church especially, um, but it is pretty hard. The accounts are pretty graphic. Um, but while I was reading the Red Record, I think what struck me the most is that Ida uses real names, full names, not only of the people who were executed, but also the people who perpetrated the crimes or accused the, the victims of these crimes. It's a weird thing kind of in this like George Floyd era where the names are very important. Don't forget the name. We honor the victims by telling their names and keeping their stories alive. But it also holds the people who perpetrated that accountable, which I think is a really important thing that Ida did. Um, so let me get here. So Ida used her platform to seek justice for the oppressed. And it's a virtue that she acquired from her parents rooted firmly in God's word. And so one of my favorite quotes of hers is, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. I think that's awesome. So we're going to dive into her biography, and then we'll get back to Esther a little bit later. Ida B. Wells was born into enslavement in Mississippi on July 16, 1862. That is almost six months before the Emancipation Proclamation, which is just bananas. So close. Um, and that kind of stigma really sticks with her a lot. Um, to overcome that. Once the proclamation happened, her parents were freed, and because of that, they were able to really flourish. And they had eight kids. Ida was the oldest of the eight. Um, all the kids, when they were old enough, were enrolled into a missionary school. We'll see that faith is a really big part of Ida's upbringing. So in this kind of parental, faith, missionary-based kind of thing, her parents really hammered home the dignity of all humanity. It's really important. Look where we've come from. Look how we've been mistreated by not being ascribed dignity. So that's a big part of Ida's up, um, upbringing. Also, her parents instilled this really cool thing that I wish my, my parents kind of did this. But it's like, if you see something happening that's bad, speak up, yo. But hers was very prophetic-based. And as we've, if anyone's read the prophets in the Old Testament, like, it is, it's on. Like, if something bad is happening, things are going to get called out right away. God is not okay with complacency. So these early instilled spiritual values remained with Ida for her entire life. And in her unfinished autobiography that was published after her death, um, these values uh, prompted Ida to describe her life as a crusade for justice. When she was 16, however, Ida and her family had a pretty, pretty big tragedy happen. Um, it was 1878, and there was the yellow fever epidemic was sweeping across the nation, um, which we all know what that's like to have a big epidemic go through. Um, it claimed a lot of lives, but most importantly, it took the lives of Ida's parents, both of them, and her youngest brother. Um, just devastating. I can't even imagine. Ida was out of town when this happened, and when she came back, her now six siblings, um, were being told by the community that we're going to split you up to be raised in different houses so that we can take care of you adequately. Um, Ida did not want that to happen. So she's 16, important to remember, 16, and she says, I'll take care of them. I'll raise them. I'll do that. She's barely in high school. She's not very well educated. Um, she only really like, got literate a little bit, a little bit later. Um, so she gets a job to teach elementary school to help make ends meet. 
And as a musician, I've taught music lessons where I feel like I'm just one step ahead of the kid, and I'm fine. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, give me two hours, I gotcha, we're gonna be great. So Ida kind of did that too. She stayed one lesson ahead of the kids and was able to teach and do her thing. Um, she must have been really good at it. She was, that was her whole job for a while. Um, she did that for a couple years, and then she got a job offer in Memphis, Tennessee. She was coming from Mississippi to go teach uh, school up there. Because her youngest brothers were now able to take care of themselves, um, she took the job and took two of her sisters with her up to Memphis. So when she was in Memphis, she was teaching, and it was really great, but she kind of discovered this new passion and got a job as a journalist, and so she was writing for the paper. Um, so her first, as I got here, um, her first stories were largely concerned with African-American issues, women's issues, and major political and social topics. And her first article that she wrote that was published was about an experience she had of being removed from a train, um, which is a common story that we hear a lot now. Um, I think it's important to realize this is 70 years before the Montgomery bus boycotts, and so it's, it's the 1800s, and she, as, a, as an African-American woman, goes to seat on the women's section of this train. Not whites, not blacks, not whatever, the women's section, she's a woman, and she goes and sits there, and there's no laws at the time forbidding this, and the train conductor says, nah, you gotta move. Like, move to the smoking section, move to the back. She refuses. She gets kicked off the train. She gets picked up by two cops and dragged off the train. Bananas. Rightfully, she stands up for herself and she sues the railroad company. She wins the first case, but it goes all the way up to the Tennessee State Supreme Court. Uh, and my favorite way, so they do reject her case. They don't let her, you know, get the ultimate victory. Shocker. Um, but I love that they blamed it on her, quote, unladylike persistence. <laughs> Nevertheless, she persisted. You know what I mean? So Ida, this is her first article. She starts gaining popularity as a writer. But for the time, she was juggling two careers. She was a teacher and she was a writer. Um, over the years, her writings were gaining popularity, kind of shedding light on some really awful things happening in the American South. Um, the, the civil rights scene was very burgeoning. It was, um, it's not the 50s or the 60s, it's still the 19th century, um, but things are really happening, and Ida's becoming a pretty big voice in that movement. So, bless you, so popular was Ida that eventually she was able to quit her teaching job and become a writer full-time. So she was able to really focus on telling the story of her people and what was going on. She also became the co-owner, co-owner of Memphis's black newspaper called the Memphis Free Speech and Headline, Headlight, rather. This is 1889. Three years later, Memphis experiences its first lynching. Horrible, horrible, horrible. The story is three African men, three African American men were publicly executed and hanged. The story is kind of unclear. It literally starts over an argument in a game of marbles. Some kids are playing marbles with some white kids. An argument breaks out. It explodes into all these kind of just big things. A white mob storms a black-owned grocery store and just basically starts beating up whoever they can get their hands on. Um, the three men who were, who were murdered probably weren't even involved tangentially in this marble fight. They were just the first people they could get their hands on gone. One of the men who was murdered was named Tommy Moss, and he was a dear and close friend of Ida's. Like the death of her parents, she was out of town 
when this happened. Um, so she didn't experience this firsthand, but when she came back, kind of the aftermath was all over the place. This experience completely redirected her life. Before this incident with Tommy, Ida admits that she thought lynching, while horrible, was more probably just an overreaction to some pretty brutal crimes. Like, maybe she, her words were like, maybe they deserved it, but I'm, I'm not really quite sure. I think it's an overreaction. Tommy, her dear close friend, never hurt anybody in his entire life, never had done anything wrong. And Ida said, wait a second, there must be something else going on here. So she took it upon herself in 1892 to go research every account of lynchings in the United States at the time. 1892. And she publishes it in the book called A Red Record. There's over 200 cases, 200 documented cases of this happening. As she's researching, she finds out there's some patterns going on here that doesn't quite seem right. If these men are accused of crimes, it's usually sexually assaulting a white woman. And that's kind of the big catalyst trigger. As Ida is researching this, she finds out that the men who are actually murdered have nothing to do with this relationship. And if they do, it's because it's a consensual relationship with a white woman. Romantic, dating, married, whatever. Um, that did not sit well in the American South at that time. That's one pattern. The other pattern is, if these men were even involved at all, it's tangential crimes. It's tangential presence. It's tangential. It's not the, not the thing. It's certainly not worthy of being executed, especially in the brutal way of this. Shocker, the people who murdered these people were brought, if they were brought at all before a court, they were always released. Innocent, cleared of all charges. Go about your way. Um, nine times out of ten, there was local police people involved in these lynchings. There was local politicians. There were local priests and pastors and church congregation members involved in these things. And then, well, the community says, we turn our eye, we turn our eye, it's done. It's, it's awful, sorry. It's really bad. So two months after the first Memphis lynching, she's published Red Record, and she decides to write an article for her newspaper. And this is, I think this is the most heroic act I've ever seen um, this is like y'all saint quality material. She writes an article for her paper, and she says, quote, Nobody in this section of country, the South, believes the threadbare old lie that black men sexually assault white women. She makes it clear that folks are often engaged in a mutually beneficial, consensual romantic relationship. And she ends her article by saying, If Southern men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and public sentiment will have a reaction. A conclusion will be reached, which will then be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. She was implying that these white women actually enjoyed, shocker, being in relationships with black men. And she noted that it was also strange that these white men also eluded punishment. You can imagine the reaction that the local community of Memphis had to this news. Um, another pattern is Ida is out of town. When this article is published, it's unsigned. So it kind of takes some time for the people to figure out who wrote it. She eventually claimed it because she's awesome. Um, the, the white people formed a mob, stormed the newspaper offices, shut it down permanently, no more newspaper, and they threatened to dismember and execute and hang whoever's responsible. They just wanted blood. Let's go. Ida eventually comes clean and says, it's me. She's great. She's very brave. And they, they threatened the same thing. We'll find you. 
So she decides to flee the south. She moves to the north where she kind of settles down. She continues her activist work while she's up there. Um, she's really popular. She's able to speak freely without, without threat. There's still a lot of northern violence and racialized hatred up there as well. Um, it wasn't as uh, imminent, I guess, as what Ida thought. So as she's speaking up, her popularity is really gaining steam. She, is, uh, she gains support of Frederick Douglass, who is really great. Um, they become buddies. She, he writes a lot of forwards to her books, which I really love. Um, so as her star is kind of rising, she's speaking out more and more. She's getting invited to speak around the country. She gets invited to Britain to talk about what's going on in the American South. Um, and kind of all these really big things are happening. While she was in the North, she got married um, to a guy named Ferdinand Bartlett. He's a Chicago lawyer. Um, all that's important is that they moved to Chicago and they had four kids. Um, history kind of says this is where Ida began to lose steam. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Um, she, she's, a, she's raising four kids by herself while her husband is a lawyer and doing lawyer things, as lawyers do. And in the meantime, she's still speaking out. She's still very much herself doing her thing. Um, but she also kind of has to stay located in Chicago. So as the civil rights movement kind of begins going up, she found, she's a co-founder of organizations like the NAACP, the Urban League, stuff like that, really cool. Um, she kind of then, over the next little bit, it's kind of the remainder of her life, she's in her 30s at this point. Um, she runs for office, political office, she doesn't win. Um, she starts really pushing for women's rights, uh, suffrage, suffrage rights, voting rights. She's in the Illinois Women's Suffrage League. Um, that's really great. But the platform that she had when she was kind of in her 20s in the South really starts shrinking. It seems that there's other stars rising too who kind of suck the oxygen out of the room. So Ida kind of fades into obscurity as far as the historians are concerned. Um, before she dies, she starts working on her autobiography and kind of, here's my life, here's what I've seen, here's what's happened. Um, she passed away of kidney failure at 68 before she could complete it. Um, I love this, though. The final chapter that she wrote before she passed was titled, Eternal Vigilance is the Price of Liberty. Ida B. Wells is an ideal y'all saint. She's a normal person. She's speaking up. She's following God's call to be prophetic and to use her voice to write injustice and to seek the kingdom of God here on earth. Her writings are filled with constant challenges to pervasive racism and social apathy. And in seeking to see the kingdom of God on earth, she dedicated her life to the pursuit of justice despite widespread opposition and threats of violence. And her example is one that we should all follow, and it's well-grounded in Scripture. So we read Esther today. Um, so what does that have to do with Ida? Well, Esther, like Ida's parents, was forcibly removed from her home. She's probably in her teens when the king of Persia was having a dispute with his wife, the queen, and he said, bring me some girls. I want to get married to somebody new and have a new queen. And they went out and rounded up a bunch of folks, and they participated in this, like, gruesome, brutal, like, beauty contest of which Esther uh, makes it through and becomes the queen. Her rise to the palace also helped her cousin Mordecai, who we saw. Mordecai was looking after Esther after her parents had passed away as well. And Mordecai was a guard at the king's palace in the gates and foiled an assassination plot by letting Esther know, hey, something's going on. Go tell the king. This considerably raised Mordecai's profile. He was a Jewish man. 
There was also another guy named Haman, um, who in the telling of these stories in the Feast of the Booze, people hiss, which is a very fun thing. Um, don't hiss, please. Um, Haman was the highest government official. He was like, he wasn't the president, but maybe he was like somewhere up there. And his whole thing was when he walked by, you had to bow to him, show him your allegiance. You bowed. Um, everyone did that except for Mordecai, Mordecai, who was already raised in profile. Why is this guy not bowing to me? It infuriated him. Um, so bad was kind of Haman's hatred towards Mordecai. He said, I'm going to kill Mordecai. Not only that, I'm going to kill his people, the entirety of his people, the Jewish people. And he goes and he tells the king. He kind of manipulates him and mis misaligns the truth and says, uh, we got to wipe them out. They're not good. They're doing bad things, and they're making fun of you, basically. The king agrees and decrees that all men, women, children, old people, everyone, wiped out. Get them all. Go. Horrible. Horrifying. The scripture reading that uh, Anna read this morning picks up right after uh, Mordecai finds out about this. He's in mourning, sackcloth and ashes, very sad. And he tells Esther, you gotta, you need to speak up again. Like, now's the time. Like, your people are in trouble. It's time to go. Do, do your thing. And she says, no. If I speak up without being asked, if nobody lets me, it, what's the word? It's like if no one gives me the golden scepter, the king that points his golden scepter at me, then I'm going to get killed for this just for speaking out to her. She's the queen talking to the king, and she's worried about this. And she says, besides, the king hasn't even put a scepter towards me in the last 30 days. So, no. Mordecai says, yes, now is the time. Perhaps in a time such as this, are you here? Suck it up. Go be brave and save your people. And she says, you're right. My favorite part of the story, she says, I will go, and if I die, then die will I. Very, very powerful. And her bravery, she goes to tell the king. The king says, what's going on? She says, let's have a feast and talk about it. And he says, all right, in two days we'll have a feast. I'll bring Haman. It'll be great. We'll have a good time. The feast happens, and the king says to Esther in front of Haman, Esther, I will do whatever you want. Just ask, and I will give you whatever you want. Thank you for being you. And she says, my people are in trouble. Someone wants to kill all of my people. She doesn't say who she is yet. And he says, who did this? Who is asking you to do, who is saying we need to go wipe out your people? And she says, Haman. Right in front of him, in front of the king, she speaks truth to power in front of some very scary folk. So the king orders Haman, well, you know. And he, and he says, you know what? My order, take it away. Let's go. We're going to save these people. Now's the time. Let's go. I'm going to pass it out. We're going to make it happen. And the Jewish people are saved. Big, big deal. It's so cool. So if we look at this passage through the story of Ida B. Wells, we see some parallels. Um, Ida and Esther both saw the violence being committed against their people and both risked their lives in speaking up. Thanks to their respective braveries, the atrocities committed against their communities were eventually brought to a close. Eventually, it took some time, and dignity was restored to the lives of the Jewish and African-American communities. The same bravery that Esther embodied was also present in Ida. When Esther does the thing about, if I die, then I'll die, whatever, like, this is, this is what's right, it kind of mirrors Ida's thing when she writes for her paper being like, dude, if you're in the South and this is how you're doing, people might start interpreting that wrong. Like, you might need to start changing your mind. She knew 
punishment was going to be coming. She knew death threats were going to come in. She knew that. It was the same thing as Esther going to the king and saying, my people are in trouble. There's some differences. Esther was able to do that. It took some time. Ida was kind of a really big push in that moment. Um, I think it's really cool. There's also the stories of Jesus where he's, so he's with the Pharisees, who, are, who is the middle class. The Pharisees are the middle class, the majority of the people. They're not wildly bad guys. They're just middle class folk trying to do their best. But they interpret the law a certain way. Jesus is walking around with his disciples. He's letting them eat graze from the fields. He's healing people on the Sabbath, the days that's supposed to be no work, no, no labor, no nothing. And the Pharisees are furious, and they say, why can you let this happen? And Jesus says, the Sabbath is meant for man, humans, and not the other way around. It's just affirming the same dignity that Ida affirmed in her community, the same dignity that, that Esther was doing for her community, and Jesus is speaking up for the people as well, saying, we need to have this. Like Esther and Ida, Jesus is also threatened for this. They want to kill him. And it leads to his also public execution. James Cone, who's a great theologian, I recommend reading him, in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, talks about how Jesus' execution on the cross is also eerily similar to the lynching accounts as described by Ida B. Wells. So, just as Esther and Ida's bravery enabled the eventual freedom of their people at great risk of violence, so too did Jesus, especially through his brave death on the cross. Jesus' bravery not only freed us from being enslaved to sin, but it reconciled us with God, restoring our own dignity to ourselves, from God themselves, no less. We are called to share in this mission of reconciliation with our neighbors as well. In our own time, we see that tremendous suffering is still occurring, hatred, bigotry, and oppression are all around us. Innocent people are being murdered in Gaza and in Israel. Systemic racism continues to keep our siblings from receiving equal treatment and opportunity. The LGBTQ plus community is routinely demonized to the point of mass and record suicides. Atrocities like these are only able to flourish in a society that prioritizes quiet status quo complacency over truth-telling. We must all follow the example set by y'all saints, Ida B. Wells, who sought to see God's kingdom here on earth and speak truth to power, even though it might come at great personal risk. God is still with us. Oak family, would y'all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your truth that you so love the entire world and continually affirm the dignity and value of the last, the lost, and the least. We ask that you fill us with the same spirit of bravery that you instilled in our sister, Ida B. Wells, that we may speak your truth often in the face of rejection, opposition, and threats of violence. Bless us with the wisdom to see those in our neighborhood who often go unnoticed, and fill us with the guiding light of your spirit to draw close to us all with love, kindness, and compassion. Amen.